Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 024, conversation with Mr. Wesley Chance, number three. Welcome back, Wes. Hey, thanks for having me again. Thanks for coming in and thanks for staying interested. And I'm loving these conversations with you and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. It looks, sounds like uh, once a week these days. Yeah. Or, or maybe more this week because it looks right. like you know, you're only halfway through. Right, but, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And so you noticed that I took a few days off from uh from the podcast well um it's funny the reason that i wasn't lecturing as much this week is that i was learning new technology because i've been transferring <laughs> several of the lectures over to youtube and that's involved me learning the the youtube interface as well as learning how to convert audio files to video files which uh which that took some learning that's taken some learning actually i think actually your fiance yeah. uh Steph bell she she sent me both of the sites that do it for free that worked for me. And so I, I have a lot to thank her for my she, YouTube presence is to thank. I have to th her to thank for my, for our YouTube <laughs> presence at this point. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's savvy with all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's pretty, it's pretty, it comes naturally, you know, to, mm -hmm. to her at this point to like, uh, try to figure stuff out on there and, uh, and then be able to like, teach other people you know that's like a, right. a, a real skill of the new the new media world here that's like, really cool and i know she's a teacher and a math person too so that's yeah. makes a lot of sense yeah and so you had a couple questions um for me that you called in on and um if you could well i recall one was this you noticed yeah. my use of the quote from wisdom written by solomon and you you mm -hmm. had a query about that you said that you went to read the quote and in context this was a quote within the work that was spoken by somebody who was not painted as a particularly intelligent figure. And so your claim must have thus been, I don't know if you're using the quote in the way that it was meant to be used or in the Basically. appropriate context. Yeah, right. So, so it's an interesting book. It's a book of the Bible that I'm not as familiar with, like, right. because it's not, it's not in the uh, the translations of the Bible that I've most you know read in, and so I found it online. You know, I went and looked it up online again. Like I know I've I've seen it before, but I can't you know I haven't studied it closely or anything. So so Wisdom chapter two opens with in, in this this first thing that comes up on Google. Uh, it's from the uh, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and it says um, verse one: For not thinking rightly, they said among themselves. And then there's a colon. And a quote, an opening of the quote, and it says, brief and troubled is our lifetime. And the quote goes on, um, uh, there is no remedy for our dying, nor is anyone known to have come back from Hades. Yes. For by mere chance, where we went. So it's like a naturalistic account of the world. Okay. And um, in the, it seems like in the implications of that is as it moves on, it's like, well, so, you know, our lifetime does yeah, not whatever. seem to have meaning right it's like yes. it doesn't have a higher purpose let us have our fill of costly wine and perfumes is verse seven um let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they would so it's a very beautiful mm. evocation of right like like carpe diem um and then the verse that you got to was uh as it translated here verse 11 is but let our strength be our norm of righteousness for weakness proves itself useless um the next line Verse 12 is pretty heavy. Let us lie and wait for the righteous one because he is annoying to us. He opposes our actions, reproaches us for transgressions of the law and charges us with violations of our training. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a critique, right? It's a critique of the one who 
claims to be righteous on a, a, a level of kind of a the, a theological level of, of a higher or teleological purpose or of whatever sort. And right. uh, yeah, go ahead. And, yeah. And just, well, that's interesting because the, per- because given the lines they come after, it seems as if the person who will speak the truth is the one who will surely be persecuted because he will be the one who speaks against their fallen lifestyle. And, yeah. and that seems to be why he would annoy them in the same way that Socrates annoyed those around him and was called a gadfly. But I should explain my use of that quote. Um, okay. Because maybe this will be illustrative for our listeners, especially the students. I took this quote as quoted from a book called 12 Rules for Life by Jordan B. Peterson, where he's using the quote to show that people have in the past, because of the suffering present in life, tried to justify that through the use of pursuing pleasure, particularly hedonists. And um, um, uh, how am I forgetting the the philosopher from uh, Greece who was also known? Oh, Epicurean. Yes, exactly. I don't yeah. know how that name yeah. fell out of my head, but it did. And so he he was simply making this quote, and he starts it with "Short and sorrowful is our life, and there is no remedy when a man comes to his end, and no one has been known to return from Hades." And he ends it with "But let our might be our law of right, for what is weak." proves itself to be useless. And so in context, how I interpreted the, these, these lines without the rest of wisdom, which was, I would say, uh, an oversight on my part, was that, sure. but let our might be our law of right for what is weak proves itself to be useless was sort of the frame or the limit imposed on the life of pleasure that, well, if life is meaningless and we pursue pleasure, at least not us forget, let us not forget this one truth, which is, that which is weak is useless. That which is effective and competent, which is how I understood mighty, yeah. is good. Let's not forget the difference between good and bad is what I took that to mean. And I, I think I even extended that to be the difference between, between say, Hector and Paris. Paris, incompetent, <laughs> weak, useless, gets his entire civilization destroyed. Hector, noble, beautiful unique works uh tremendously hard even he won't be spared and so he's tragic paris is farcical and uh and i i i don't know it struck me as a quote that was sophisticated or complicated because it was it was sophisticated enough to recognize that life is suffering and to come up with an alternative way of looking at things in order to deal with it but it wasn't yet sophisticated enough to pursue simply a virtuous lifestyle like say the the ancient Greek ideal of the of the um, Kalos Kagathon, right? The uh, yes, the uh, right, the noble right. and the and the the good, the noble and the good man. Sure. Um, but but I don't know. How do you interpret that line lingering in there? Well, so yeah, it, yeah. That's what also uh, what it struck me as was a a, a point in which there was there was something there was something more there that you you were sort of touching on and it was in connection with the 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 movement of the of the book but but was a little bit tangential and this is this is something that i always come back to with with uh with these kind of discussions is the the differences right, right? the the deep distinctions between worldviews where where one is um being drawn from uh uh, uh Middle Eastern, you know, um, that that kind of cosmos, uh, and and the other is 
well, it's a uh, Homeric uh, and and it's from from a, a mythological standpoint, um, which is related. You know, it's it's deeply related, sure, but but there's still a, a huge gap of of time and of culture and and again, I think so that it's it's important. I mean, again, for for anyone, but especially people who are going to you know read this stuff and try to make up their own you know system of values based on it to to go and look at as much as possible look at where the where the quote originates and 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 how it's used in that in that whole of which it is a part and then compare that whole to another whole right the, so the 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 book of wisdom say uh, compare that to the the book 5 of the iliad or, or whatever it is and then um and then make up you know make up your mind about how they would fit together um and so talking about might or strength and and right or um you know virtue or something like that um it just seems really it seemed it seemed on just hearing the quote taken out of context it seemed like surprising to me that that would be that that would be a um a judeo-christian uh you know, attitude. And so I looked at it and it seems like it's, it's basically right. Ascribed to someone who's outside of that framework, but so then it does kind of fit. I, I think, I mean, it does kind of fit then someone who's in the world of the Iliad, right? Because you, you, you've got a different concept of what gods are and how they function. And, and so, um, but I think the next thing to talk about then is what that framework or concept of the gods is to someone who's on the battlefield, in front of Troy, right? Like what does Diomedes, you know, he, he has a certain like revelation there. So like, what is that, what does that constitute for him? And, and how does it um, maybe change the way he thinks about might and, and right or, or uh, yeah, weakness or, you know, all of, all of those kinds of those conceptual categories, right? Like how do they translate between cultures and then how do they, well, it seems like you're making the case that they're, we're seeing them develop, within that culture, right? Uh, the, the kind of ranking system of, of who's on top among the gods and who's on top among the, the heroes, the, the human beings. Um, seems like that transition's kind of happening there, so. Yeah, well, that's a lot. Uh, but even before I get there, I sort of, I've, I've had the opportunity to look over the end of wisdom. And I would now say that I, what I think that wisdom two is saying and if I could just read a few of the lines just to let everybody know what's happening. <clears throat> this is this comes right after, but let our strength be our norm of righteousness, for weakness proves itself useless. That's the shift in tone. And so now, now they plot against this person for his virtue, which makes sense to us actually given their fallen ethics. So let us lie and wait for the righteous one because he is annoying to us. Why is he annoying? Because he holds a different value system. And he shows them for what they are, the, the fallen demons they've become rather than the angels pursuing truth. He opposes our actions, reproaches us for transgressions of the law, and charges us with violations of our training. This is essentially the coming of a prophet to a fallen place, um, which is actually described mm -hmm. in the chapter that I'm reading by um, Jordan B. Peterson. I believe it's in Rule 6. Um, from 12 rules from life, but he professes to have knowledge of God and styles himself a child of the Lord. Sounds like a clear indication of the coming of Jesus. To us, he is the center of our thoughts. Merely to see him is a hardship for us, which is which was said of Job too, of course, that he's so righteous that people won't even look at him in the face. 
because his life is not like that of others and different are his ways because they're all fallen and he's living a just life. So of course they're going to come to hate him. He judges us debased, of course. He holds aloof from our paths from, as from things impure because they are impure. He calls blessed the destiny of the righteous, correct, and boasts that God is his father. Well, there's another sort of reference to Jesus, but to any human too, depending on how one uh, understands Paul's saying of Jesus remains in one's heart. Uh, let us see whether his words be true. Let's find out what will happen to him in the end. Or if the righteous one is the son of God, God will help him and deliver him from the hand of his foes. And so that's sort of what the uh, the ethic of of the um, Inquisition, right? If God truly loves you, he, he'll save you from the suffering. And it's like, no, that's not exactly what it means. It means that you'll stick to the truth no matter what. And so you're actually going to prove that by making these people endure the suffering. So you're essentially as Luciferian as it comes. Um <clears throat> With violence and torture, let us put him to the test that we may have proof of his gentleness and try his patience. Well, that's there it is, just explicitly said right there. Okay, let's see how good he actually is. All right, welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 024, uh, part B with Mr. West Chance. Sorry we got cut off there. We are not experts with this technology yet. So, Wes, you said you thought we got cut off at verse 20 of Wisdom Chapter 2? Yeah, yeah, that's the last thing I heard. And then it seemed like your mic just kind of cut off or something, but it looked like it was still recording. So I don't I don't know. Maybe there's okay, a well, more. Yeah. Well, it'll be educational for all of us. So I'll go through this very quickly. So let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to his own words, God will take care of him. These were their thoughts, but they erred, for their wickedness blinded them. And they did not know the hidden counsels of God. Neither did they count on a recompense for holiness, nor discern the innocent soul's reward okay and so uh, uh and for i should finish it then for god formed us to be imperishable the image of his own nature he made us hmm. but by envy of the devil death entered the world and they who are allied with him experience it so how i take this as an entire chapter to mean is that the first half is describing the people who have forgotten god or forgotten the truth or forgotten that which makes them strong as a people um they become envious and arrogant uh, um and so and deceitful too. And so a man arises, a prophet arises, which is something Peterson describes as happening in the Old Testament constantly whenever a state starts to fail, that a prophet arises, somebody who stands outside essentially as an exile and shows the corruption and is hated for it. Well, that's exactly what happens here, right? Because the transition line is eleven twelve, where, but let might be right. And so there's only one person who's, who's being righteous, who's being mighty, who's being competent, competent enough to explain what's happening and well, what do the people do? They persecute him. They persecute him and they use, they use his own words as, as the lies with which to condemn him. Like, you know, typical stuff like, like the things we said in Puritan new England about witches. Well, you know, if we throw them in the water and they drown, well then God loves them. And if they don't, well, that means they're witches, but I guess it's slightly different in that they say, well, God will protect him. And it's like, well, yeah, that that means something a little bit different from what they're saying. But to connect this to your, your question about how I would connect this to the Iliad and the Odyssey, even though they came from uh, the, the classical or the nascent West rather than the, the Near East, would be this, that competency, uh, regardless of what specifically makes one competent in some environment, is the capacity to adapt appropriately in order to survive in um in the max in the best possible way in a circumstance or to come out maximally unscathed 
in some sort of circumstance. And so the specific circumstance of, say, Diomedes expresses itself on the field of battle and in council. Those are the two places that he can gain Cleos and show himself uh, as the stalwart captain that he is. Um, and that will then represent itself on the battlefield through him killing more individuals, receiving bigger tasks and being successful in them. And so Athena will then be represented as joining him, suggesting that the gods not only give you the greater tasks, but also help you to achieve them. And, and so I would say that what at least I've experienced in the Near Eastern tradition, and specifically in the Old Testament, seems to be, and I agree with Jordan Peterson on this, that it seems like the states rise and fall, rise and fall. You know, um, that the Tower of Babel gets built. The people forget what makes them who they are. They become disorganized. They lose their shared speech, which we talked about a little bit last time. And I actually wanted to address about the Trojans and noticing that they they seem to have disordered speech. And you connected that to America today and said that we seem more Trojan than Greek. And I, I would say that I, I completely agree because we're even losing the notion of a shared language, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, something that I, I, I a thought underlying a particular, a particularly pernicious ideology that sickened the minds of many even intelligent people right now is the idea that if you have experienced something that somebody has not through a frame that somebody does not embody, that they can't understand you. That's absolutely wrong. That's wrong in every way. Because what do we do all day? We share stories with each other. Well, why is it that you can share a story and understand it and then tell it and then empathize with it? Well, because, because we're precisely the creatures that can embody each other's perspectives. That's actually the key to what makes us human. That's why the logos is at the beginning of John. Through our words, oh, through our yeah, story yeah. to each other, we can communicate the truth of our beings. That is what we have always known. And even if somebody tries to quibble on the words of that, they're going to use words. They're going to want to argue it. And they're going to tell the story about the argument to all their friends, where they likely say that they won, even though that would probably not be true. <laughs> right. right. But that's, you know, that's fine too. You know, they can tell the story that's and it right. grows in and that's 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 the way it sort of works. like you're saying yeah when we're being at our most human we're we're it's it's insofar as we're we're storytelling and we're story understanding and we're story retelling we're, and recombining we're sharing information with each other it's like a constant interplay of adam and eve of sharing the apple over and over which i would say is exactly why macintosh the company has an apple on it because they recognize that the apple is information and that's what brings consciousness and also that's why on magritte's painting of the man in the business suit, he has an apple on his face because that's the place from which all information comes and where it goes. And uh, from which we derive the vast majority of our information, looking at people's faces. In fact, you can even tell that our natural environment is a social environment by the, the drawings that children make. What do they put on everything? Happy faces, right? And that's not just because they see happy faces. That's because they're actually framed in order to see faces. That's why schizophrenics often are said to see faces everywhere uh, be because humans' natural environment are people. So, of course, we see faces everywhere. And, you know, this is even in legends like the man in the moon and things like that. We like to see people around us because that is our natural environment.
Um, right, right. And the and the little fairies and little yes in the woods and thing, you know, little yeah, totally. You know, and I think actually that's a sort of a sad sort of a sad truth about a genius, right? Because the the name the word genius comes from the Latin, which means the the same word as daimon or daimonia in uh, Greek, which meant spirit originally. And Socrates said he had a daimonia or a daimonion who who would tell him what to not to do. He right. would never tell him what to do, but he would say, nope. Um, and I like, think that actually that's sort of what a genius gets, right? They get like to have, they get to Achilles. converse with their own spirit, with their own heart, like sort of how Odysseus describes it, right? Like you were saying. And, um, <clears throat> but that why does a genius have to speak to his own spirit? Because, well, that's the only one he can be fully honest with, right? Uh, even though he shares who he is with people, he can't connect to anybody because he's totally unique. Yeah, so this this is kind of where I guess it's interesting the uh, the way that the uh, Edenic um, model, the fall, and all that sort of connects in with uh, the the Greek gods and the and the Greek mm -hmm. heroes, right? There, and this was the other side of the question I was asking yes. about about this book, where you said uh, the the existentialist by having a goal to aim at, no matter what the goal is, right, that somehow uh, makes it possible to to put up with the suffering that life entails, yeah. right? And that's that's a great Nietzsche quote that's somewhere, I mean, I've heard it quoted more than I've, I've seen the original again, but there's a danger to that, but I know it's a great quote. And he says, right, like a, a guy who, a person who has a why can put up with any how, right? Something yes. along those lines. Yes, and, yes. And, and, the, and the thing is, well, well, it does seem, it seems like it might matter a little bit what the why is, you know, and it seems like mm -hmm. it might matter a little bit what the how is going to play out as because, yeah, but, but it, it seems like it's a, it's a refinement of that same idea than to say, okay, so then we can, if we can agree on that, right, we can agree that there is good and evil, right, which even the bad folks in, in wisdom can agree on, right, there is something good, yes. something better. And they dislike it. If you, if you that you know and articulate that and you have that to go back to well then you can have a you can have a productive you know development which will take you hundreds or thousands or millennia or whatever of time but you'll eventually it seems like these better stories these more accurate or more uh life affirming or however you want to put it these kind of stories will out you know and and your your culture will develop to the point where you can start to you know assess it on on a on a deeper you know level of honesty and sort of see things as metaphors rather than literal truth and all that good stuff but that there is sort of something yeah and maybe it is you know the logos or, or however you want to put it that to 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 go back to that as as a kind of starting point like as long as we can agree that there is some kind of purpose well okay then we can start to talk about better purposes worse well purposes, and, better means and it just strikes me that what else would we be talking about i mean we already covered the issue of we're not going to simply judge ourselves by race or gender in the 20th century and even though obviously we don't have things perfect in sort in terms of prejudice in principle we've already dealt with this and in principle that's where it matters because how do we thus organize as a people not by race not by religion not by ethnicity not by uh, country, you know, country of origin as ethnicity. Uh, yeah. We combine together based on the same values, on the same ideas. And so, insofar as we forget that, 
and we focus on only that which differentiates us from each other in a Thersitean and Luciferian manner, we forget the very bonds that tie us together. And thus, our trust in society decreases, which has actually been manifested in the world by us losing a point on our credit rating by, I believe, standard and poor. Uh, That's a great it's, yeah, symbol. It's, right it's there, not yeah. simply a symbol. It's the truth. Yeah. If our credit rating goes down, we are less trustworthy, and therefore we have less trust in our society. It is an objective measure of us losing our most valuable commodity. And so we disagree with each other on the fundamentals to our own peril because we're not disagree because therefore we're not even playing the game at that point. So something I wanted to address uh, about what you were saying or what you were asking about in terms of having a goal in mind for one, I can address this at a biological level. So based on the work of Peterson and um, the studies of Gray and McNaughton, we know that there are two reward systems in humans at least. So there's the consumatory reward system, which is serotonergic. It, uh, it's how you feel after you eat. It's actually a satiation system. And so that's why after you eat, poof, you don't need to eat anymore. Great. And there are other systems like that, like the sexual reproduction system, of course. And so there's another system as well called the, um, um, excuse me, how am I forgetting the name of this? It starts with an I. What a teacher moment right here. Um, the the incentive reward system, excuse my... me. Uh, so the consumatory reward system has its own circuitry and the incentive reward system has its own circuitry too. And you might even understand uh, this in sort of a Cain and Abel sort of of way, but um, I don't want to pursue that right now too much, but incentive reward is what gives you hope when you are something you want to do. And so the common examples are when you are going to a place to eat or going to a party or going to see somebody you love or going on a trip. Everybody knows that these things give meaning to life because they make you happy. Well, that's actually a dopaminergic system, which is that which cocaine addicts and alcoholics abuse. And so when you have goals, regardless of what they are, and you move towards them, you not only have a value system of good and bad, because that which helps you towards your goal is good, that which, that which gets in your way and inhibits you is bad, but you actually have access to chemical reward in your mind, the neurotransmitter dopamine, which rats will take un- they will take hits of that until they die. We're not so different from them biologically. And well, we have people who get addicted to things all the time. So we certainly understand that. So the idea is this, that if you have a goal, you have a value system and you have some towards which to strive, which can give you good positive emotions. You also have some negative emotion whenever something comes up, but you have something to do. Now, how does society constrain this? Well, in a lot of ways, you only have so many games you can validly play. You can only, you know, you're constrained in a million different ways. You have to dress a certain way. You have to talk a certain way. You have to drive on a certain side of the street. You have to make sure you're not bumping into people. You're not burping on their faces. There are a million things you're constantly doing to stay out of people's way that if you messed up in those ways, they would immediately tell you and there would be trouble. And I mean, there's even a law system to take care of the worst sorts of games that you could play. So you're actually tuned very, very, very finely already. And so when I say that you have some choice in what it is that you pursue, well, you're also limited by economic means, by temporal means, by your skill means, by um, 
All right, so I apologize for us getting caught off there, but we'll just link all of this together later. Um, and so I think I was making the point that we have severe restrictions on the stories that we can live out anyway. And so it's not relative in the sense that you can simply live out any way that you choose and can imagine up. Not that even your imagination is not to some extent limited and framed, because of course the reason you have an imagination in the prefrontal cortex is so that you can visualize embodied movement forward and kill the bad ideas rather than dying yourself because it takes so long for you to replicate and for you to achieve a level of knowledge and skill necessary to move throughout the world in a competent manner. Um, and so I'm going to be super relativistic, um, but I think perhaps what you might be looking for, I'm not sure, but which I might also be able to supply is that what the Achaeans and the Trojans have is even though it's a horrible war, they have a pure existential, existentially unifying goal. The Trojans, survival. The Achaeans, defeat them. Their goals are completely unitary. It's many humans all together working towards the exact same end. And because of that, they have a rank ordering develop, a dominant structure within them. And that's how we start to discover the roots of our own dominance structure. Because of their unified aim, they can actually see who is the most competent person. And in fact, that competency is the highest possible goal because we see strength superseded by political power, superseded by competency. And as we go through the Iliad, through the Odyssey, this will be driven home like a stake through a vampire's heart <laughs> <laughs> well so the the yeah the the goals seem to be well maybe you could sort of talk about it this way like you have you have people who are of course you know physically strong and 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 that's sort of like a more archaic mode maybe um then you have people who are good at organizing lots of other strong people and getting them mm -hmm. together to do one thing together and then you have like the individual who's who's thinking tactically and thinking maybe even a little ironically, you know, he can put himself in other people's shoes very well. He can figure out what other people want and he, you know, he can obviously speak very powerfully. And so he's sort of emerging, you know, as, as the new ideal. But then it seems like as you, as you get to a, a higher, a bigger level of society, like an empire, you know, um, you, you can start to see how, how all of those things are really in play and, and, and they sort of need to, sort of weave together in a way and and it seems like after a certain point the thing that you're trying to do is always find the right balance and how much right how much freedom can you offer to people how much um leeway can you give them to to take their own path and and do the thing that they're good at versus what the needs of the society are at that time you know and and so then how much you know how much conformity you need from people versus that that freedom that's innate and then it seems like now what we're seeing is, is a kind of a, a recoiling against um, the, uh, the, the notion that there needs to be a great deal more equality. And it seems like people are starting to try to find ways to um, buttress or revive, or I don't know exactly how you want to put it, right? The, the, the mentality of, well, there's something, there's such a thing as individual uh, genius or, or like, you know, the 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 individual is still the highest 
Well, see, the way. thing is, yeah, so <clears throat> I just want to jump right in yeah. on that thing. The reason that people can be individuals is because they exist within a dominance hierarchy, within a society that has a structure. Otherwise, it's just anarchy, and there is no way to judge anybody as different from anybody else. You lose individuality when you lose distinctions, actually, because that which makes you individual is that which makes you distinct, that which makes you stand out from other people within a structure. You need a frame to put around the picture to know that it is a work of art, you might say. It needs to be framed. It needs to be limited in some way. Otherwise, it's, it's indistinct. There's nothing there. And so why people have forgotten what genius is, I would say, is because geniuses have disappeared because it takes a lot of work to be a genius, to become productive enough to be a genius, to be creative enough, to have so many thoughts, to be of such an incredible level and quality thinker to be a genius. Well, that takes a ton of work and that doesn't just happen overnight. And that's not something that somebody just sort of falls into. That's something you're groomed into over years as you attempt to become a master of something. And so the fact that people dislike the notion of genius is precisely the problem that I saw in wisdom too. That's wow. people hating what's good, what's mighty, because it casts aspersions upon them because they say, well, why should I live that way? Or why should I value skill and competency? Maybe because it's what's kept our people alive through all time. Maybe yeah. that's a good enough reason for someone. I mean, if they accept reasons. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, it seems like there's a, there's an end of um, uh, of of certain kinds of strife and suffering, and and then and then you sort of open new vistas for yourself <laughs> in which to find things to fight about. And uh, at the same time, you know, you you you. But can't... you limit the quality of the fights by making them about less and less and less. I would say yeah. is the problem. Like for instance, somebody uh, on Facebook today attempted to. Um, well, essentially diminish something I had said about genius. I was criticizing, I was criticizing a quote by Albert Einstein, which I stand by my criticism, which is this. He said, if you judged a, a fish by its ability to climb a tree, then you would, you would call every fish stupid. And it's like, that's not only did he not stick within the nomenclature of his own metaphor, but that's not even, that's a false analogy. Yeah. Uh, he, a good physicist as he was, he was not an excellent writer. And I've read, some of Einstein. And so, <clears throat> and I've read a, people who write a lot better than he does too. So I have something to say on that. Uh, the first thing that's wrong with that is that genius is a relative term, not absolute. It is the, the quality and quantity of productive, of artistic creativity or intellectual product that a human brings forth in life. And it's at the top. It's the person who produces the most highest quality things which impact a culture in a direct and indirect way. Um, and I think that's beyond dispute. Uh, geniuses are the people that you read on in college classes, essentially, you might say, or you used to. If you did a great books curriculum, you certainly did. <clears throat> Who knows what you read these days, if you read anything. And so, um, and so basically, the geniuses are the major standouts, the people at the top of the Pareto distribution. Everybody knows that they exist. They're the titans that have made us who we are. And well, I forget even the point I was making. Oh, excuse me. The person, the person made the claim essentially that because there were differing definitions of genius, there must not be a such thing as genius. And that's actually what people I've seen are doing more and more. They're becoming less and less distinct. They're making 
things which they think that they are making real things not real by failing to agree on definitions of them. So this person's claim could be boiled down to this. Because I disagree with you, there's no such thing as genius. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and I disagree with you because I can disagree with you. And therefore, there's no such thing as genius. So it's even worse. Yeah. And so people have realized that they can say no to other people, even when the other people are right. And so, well, that's a major problem because then the people have realized that, well, society is a game to which you must agree. And if you, if you stop agreeing to play, well, then things are going to start to fall apart. That is exactly why Odysseus beat Thersites over the head for his, for his uh, disordered speech and why Odysseus will consider cutting off the head of Eurylochus, which he should have done. It would have helped his men potentially survive in the Odyssey because Eurylochus, with his disordered speech, his speaking from weakness, his saying, hard man, Odysseus, he says, let's land on Thrinakia. And, you know, actually, it's even it's good for the ship because we don't want to weather the storm. And so with his silky words, he convinces the foolish, reckless men to go to their dooms in Thrinakia, and in fact, to great symbolic, to the great symbolic greatness of Homer and his tradition, it's precisely when Odysseus falls asleep that the men, just like with the bag of winds from Iolus, commit the sin. When awareness disappears, that's when recklessness emerges. And well, all my students know that that's the lesson to be learned from that. So <laughs> hope, hopefully, vicious little trolls on Facebook can learn the same. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's at least it's still on the level of uh, of uh, of a of a of a battle between right individuals at that point. But it's like it's when you start to see that play out in national uh, elections mm. and stuff, right? You know, playing playing these kinds of of zero you know zero basis arguments becoming um, so so you know all powerful that uh, it's that seems like. That seems like when your your civilization is is in search of something is maybe is maybe uh, falling asleep at the helm or something like that. And yeah, yeah, it is interesting because I do feel like we are turning a blind eye at the very least just to each other, and we get angry at each other so fast now. It's yeah. it's incredible. Something that Jordan Peterson mentioned is that a mark of ideology is that well, so every human is part of several normal distributions, but every human, if you consider them an individual with some in individual perks and idiosyncrasies and, uh, or excuse me, quirks, <laughs> perks too, um, you consider them several million, billion at this point, normal distributions laid all over each other. And so most, most of humans are mostly the same if you look at it that way. However, mm -hmm. what often differs with us and what differs, what at least we recognize in the West is differing most and being most important is our different ideas uh, that's most abstract about us. It's what we've had to work the longest to develop. And so it is the most abstract pattern that we can embody yet. And so um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought, Wes, trying thinking about the patterns of thought. About anger, I think, right? Getting angry over. Oh, yeah. So. So we're mostly, we're all very, very similar in terms of having similar amounts of limbs and being within certain heights and all of that. But what differs about us are our, 
our ideas. And so when we become ideologized, though, we, re we, we like to look at ourselves rather than several overlapping normal distributions as two lines separated by space. And therefore, we occupy none of the same space. And therefore, we are literally polarized in that you are there, I am here, you are enemy, I am yeah. friend or ally. And so the problem then becomes that words are used in an accusatory manager, like during witch hunts or during the Inquisition or during McCarthyism, um, that if you do not use the appropriate words and speak the right language, then you are on the wrong team. And the problem with that is that I, I hold to a maxim that the more you care about the words, the less you care about the truth. And I would say that that's, that's both justified by the Parmenides, where Zeno, the student of Parmenides, proves Parmenides correct by holding the opposite position, and also by the, the figure of Socrates, who was said to have rather vulgar language and not use good words at all. Well, it seems like now we, uh, we are uh, parodying the Logos by uh, simply walking around like the emperor without his, his new clothes, except for it's not the emperor, it's all of us who are naked and vulnerable and thinking that if we use the right words, nobody will see it. And that's exactly where this is coming from. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. It's sort of like um, a, uh, a badge or a token that you, a flag that you wave the, the words that you're using. Right. I mean, even the notion of a safe space is itself ridiculous because what space could possibly be safe if there's somebody in there with anomalous information, you don't, how could they possibly know what you don't know at some point, eventually, especially if they're interesting and hopefully they are, they're going to say something that's shocking to you. Absolutely. You have to be strong enough to be able to deal with that and not be traumatized. You need to not be weak in character and low in integrity. Um, yeah. 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 The, the, the thing is, right. It seems like, it seems like ideally uh, this is something where you can, you can talk to somebody enough where they you don't have to you don't always have to beat them over the head with the scepter where they can they can sure. hear them hear themselves if they can hear themselves or, or people saying the right words what they think are the right words and then they can actually think about it a little bit right that's mm -hmm. that seems like the democratic move there to to then say oh wait i don't really know what it is i'm saying anymore and that that comes out of you know a certain kind of conversation, but it really ultimately is going to, it's going to come out of the person themselves. Right. And uh, that, that is where, right. New, new self-understanding at least, and maybe, you know, new hypotheses about the world and, and people and everything, you know, comes. Well, that would be that. ideal. That would be absolutely ideal that <laughs> each interaction you had with somebody, they could, they could uh, in a fair trade mercantile mercurial sort of way, fairly share with you some information they have while you share some information they have. And it's like, what do people do all day? We talk to each other. Or we plan to talk to each other. Or we, we talk to each other in more abstract forms. We text each other. We send snaps to each other. We get on Instagram. We get on Facebook, Instagram. It's already uh, in Snapchat. They, they call their, they call the episodes you can put out stories and right. you read news stories and you watch YouTube videos, which convey stories and, you, you call even, even the work you do at your job, if you're calling people up, you're selling them a story, right? And good salespeople, I think, will tell you that sort of thing too. You sell an image. So if you're like selling red Corvettes, you're telling, painting a picture for somebody. You're saying, hey, you're, you're the cool dude who's the dominant 
man who's going to get the babe and this is what you do. And the guy gets into it. He's like, yeah, that's pretty cool. And, you know, and it's the same thing when you sell them a Windstar to a van, you say, okay, you're a responsible adult now. And this is what you do with your kids and your, your wife. And, you know, those are the games that are set for you to play in which you can find distinction. And they might look different from what the heroes in say a movie portray, but that's precisely because the movie, the say Marvel heroes represent the course of life, life that we take and are supposed to look alien and different so that they stand out because we're not sophisticated enough to understand what a real standout actually is. So we need people to be in Superman costumes in order to know that, Oh, well, these are the good ones. It's, that's something I actually frequently tell the students. I say, I think they're disappointed at first because Achilles is the most incredible hero, but he can't shoot lasers out of his eyes or fly. <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. say, we're so we're, you know, we're, we're so consumed with hyperbole in our culture in America right now that, you know, a superhero essentially has to be a super God like Superman who came from the sky and has two sets of parents. He can shoot lasers out of his eyes and destroy nuclear weapons. Um, <laughs> Achilles was just stronger and more handsome than everybody. That seemed to be enough um, <laughs> and faster. I mean, uh, how you construe the dominance hierarchy, I think says a lot about you and your perception of the world. For the Greeks, it was somebody who's just a lot better at the things they already liked yeah. for, <clears throat> for us. <clears throat> well, it's kind of hard for me to say why you might have laser eyes. We do actually have lasers now. And so, well, perhaps yeah, we're, we're a lot more dangerous than the Greeks, I suppose you might say, the ancient Greeks. It's, it's similar though, right? It's like the thing that's that powerful, right? If it's our, our nuclear weapons or whatever, you know, level of weapon, it's the thing that you can't, you can't actually use in a, in a, in a, in right, the Trump card. He, he stays out of the fight. He stays out of the fight. Cause as soon as he gets in, like the, the book's done pretty much, mm, you know, that's you, right. You don't have a whole lot, there's not a whole lot more to do um, except mop up. And so, yeah. And, yeah, that seems like uh, the the way that it goes with um, with geniuses, maybe too, right? Mm. It's like maybe it's partly that. It's like this thing is too, or that thought which you don't want to think. You know, whether it's the thing that reveals a, an inconsistency in your ideas, or it just tells well, you something about yourself you don't want to know. It's like you gotta you gotta put that aside. You gotta hide that for some reason. It's too. And you know, I think I think I think a genius arises for the same reason a prophet does. That if people are being unwilling to think the appropriate thoughts, then they're going to make an individual rise up who does it. And mm -hmm. so it's always going to be an individual who who has individual competency who sees something which needs to be fixed and then attempts to fix it. That's why in the Odyssey, Athena always works through Odysseus. She never does something on her own in the world. She, she also works through Telemachus too, and will take the form of mentor, but something she does is that she requires that the mortals succeed in their own ways. She will help Telemachus a little more when he's a boy, but that's the difference between a boy and a man. And I'll make that um, mm -hmm. argument and what the difference is and why it's important because part of the odyssey is how one grooms one's wisdom as an adult and as a child in order to become a creature worthy of respect, which whatever we wish to argue, that's something very important to children. And as I teach them, I certainly understand this and can see their, the effect of the book on them. They like it. And there's something about that. They're unspoiled. So, well, their opinions are good opinions <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, even though they're not as articulate as they could be yet and need to work very hard to become so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, that seems like that's the freedom, right? It's like it's insofar as you have 
this this thing in you, this potential, and it's how you sort of shape it and how you're called to shape it that that determines you know what kind of a person you end up being. It seems like it's it's yeah that there isn't uh and that you don't refuse to face it and embody it, whatever it is. The thing is you don't have you have the choice to embody it, not to choose exactly what it looks like. Yeah. And so you know, because you don't you don't choose how talented you are and how far you can go, you might say. You just choose to try, or not to try because this is a terrible word, but you choose to endeavor towards that goal, towards that ideal. And so, you know, when you put something out artistic or otherwise. Well, it can be torturous because it's never as good as you hoped it would be, but it's also just as good as you can do if you're putting your best in. And so you have control over the fact that it is the best you can do, but you don't control the fact that perhaps it's not as good as you wish it would be. Um, and I think that's a driving force also for genius, that their ideal is so high and so perfect and beautiful that it draws them, it draws them to the heights of whatever their endeavor happens to be because they don't judge themselves by their peers but by their ideal, which stands so far above what those around them can imagine that it just brings, well, it just brings the, the golden rolls, roses of our culture into bloom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well look, yeah. I, I think that's, that, that is a, I think that that's a message that, well, uh, it seems to me that anyone who's, who's really uh, willing to listen is, is going to have to, confer with that and see if that's maybe a better ideal than whatever sort of um you know con conforming to whatever sort of role they they've got in their mind about these you know and and maybe maybe we can um uh, maybe we can start addressing some of those perspectives we can maybe find some of those ideas in literature or current um things said or if anybody's listening in and they think that they have a strong grasp of what it is that we're speaking against and uh, the, our, the alternative perspective that we're sharing. Um, <clears throat> well, it'd be just nice to know what some people have to say and whether they believe in saying something, because of course that's very important too, because if somebody speaks up, then they become distinct, then they become real. Then what they say can be disagreed with, can be picked apart, right? So it takes bravery actually to speak and to make something distinct. And so it's much easier to stay indistinct in the darkness and assume you're better than those who are actually acting, right? Isn't that what the vast majority of people do the vast majority of the time while they stand in judgment of those producing things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a private story is a lot easier to believe in than a, than a public one at a certain point. Yeah. yeah, nobody's there to disagree with it and tell you that it's... <laughs> uh, except for, you know, you and your own heart and perhaps the self-hatred that you generate and the contempt the fact that you know <clears throat> precisely how much it is you're contributing through your criticism. You know, so many people have such deep psychological issues these days. It seems like that's probably part of it. Yeah. It's yeah well, I mean, I would say that if, yeah, if, if our ideals and the values that have been with us for uh, f longer than recorded history has been with us, if those start to disappear and then people start to get sicker, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I suppose you could blame the influx of immigrants. Yeah, you could do that. But that's not that fails Occam's razor because, well, perhaps the people are becoming sick because they are sickening themselves. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, 
that seems like a much simpler, a much simpler, uh, a very simple solution too, even if wrong. And Mm -hmm. perhaps we should find out whether it is wrong before we, we jump to too many more complicated explanations. And maybe if we forget what the ideal of health is, maybe the only, the only fate at the end of that path is pain because that's, that's a part of our lives that isn't going anywhere. And well, actually it can become a much, much bigger part of our lives, which is what the Hindus believe that the future can only be worse. And thinking in terms of life, it's like, well, that is where all the bad things are going to be. And you know, you're going to die in the future and your body's going to break down and all the people you love are going to die as well. Um, And a lot of them before you die too. And well, that's trouble. Yeah. And and so, you know, I think it might be important to share some values with people and to want to be strong uh, for people, knowing that tragedy is going to come and knowing that, you know, the existential despair that people used to say that if you were a true cur- courageous existentialist, you would commit suicide. And I think that's total garbage. It's like that's just that's just giving up your burden in in life yeah i wouldn't say that that's courageous in any way um i mean maybe under the conditions cato does it um but sure. but that uh, that i that strikes me as an exception um and well i don't know i might put out to the listeners what is a better ideal than working to improve yourself assuming that you are yourself a tool that is used to guard in the world and so sure. if you better yourself how could that fail to slightly better not only your own life, but the world? And in, in the stories we seem to like most, especially these epics, it seems to be the people who are striving to be the best, to, to help the most, that most resonate with children who are themselves being taught to strive to be their best. I don't know exactly when we're supposed to forget that, but it seems like we do. Why is it that we tell the children that? Do we tell them that for the same reason that we tell them about Santa Claus? Do we think it's some noble lie to entice them into this painful suffering life that means nothing? No, I don't think any of us actually take that idea seriously. When we talk to a child, all our ideology disappears and is replaced by the appropriate reactions that archetypal behaviors built into us kick in. We can't even control it. We act, mm-hmm. we encourage them. We chastise them, we shape them. It's the job that we have when we see them. And so if that's real, it's like, <laughs> well, we should make the, the rest of life good too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I'd be interested to hear, well, yeah, more from, uh, I guess, from the other side of this argument. And in, in the lieu of that, uh, I would say, uh, we're, we're probably yeah fair it's probably fair to just continue uh reading and and discussing and, and teaching people in, in the way that you're you know talking well, about yeah, another thing is we're actually willing to talk to each other and put our thoughts out there um yeah. and and so you know uh we actually are standing for judgment mm-hmm. placing our hearts on the scale against the feather and perhaps we're wanting but we're doing it yeah. Well, I and, think that's uh, Yeah, good pl- yeah, good place, especially being cut off so many times today. Hopefully we can put this all together. 
Yeah. I, I'll, I'll leave that to you with your, your technical acumen here. <laughs> I've got it. All right. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank Keep you. Back. And thank you for giving me the time. And well, we talked pretty late today and reminds me of, reminds me of old, very good times in graduate school. Yeah. Yes. Good times. Good times. All right. Till next time. Till next time.